It's always good to be back with you, and uh, we've been together now for the last couple of weeks and have uh, a couple more weeks to go in this uh, little sort of mini-series that we're doing, and again, it is really a privilege to be here, uh, for Vanessa and I to be here among you, and to uh, certainly to share God's Word with you. Uh, I want to begin just by uh, sort of thinking about a, a passage that's not our main passage for today, but you remember, uh, Jesus often in his ministry, once he begins to minister to uh, various people, and there's crowds that are building in the north in the region of Galilee where his uh, primary ministry is, and as he's ministering there, uh, he'll often take time off even away from his own disciples and uh, retreat to uh, pray. And on one of those occasions recorded in Mark chapter 6. He has uh, uh, retreated from his disciples. He has tried to take some time to pray. Crowds get the news of where Jesus is and come and surround him. And Mark just makes this simple comment here in Mark 6. When Jesus landed, that's landed on the shore and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. It's an interesting little comment here, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. The words are very easy to understand. We know what they say. The question is, what does that mean? These people were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, what are sheep like without a shepherd? Without uh, direction, without guidance. Jesus' teaching ministry is necessary because without it, without uh, the shepherding that Jesus does, we are like sheep, or in this case Mark is pointing out, or Jesus is, is stating that these people coming to, to see him and to hear him are without direction, without purpose. And that's really the, the bottom line of, of this little series here is what is our purpose or what is God's purposes? We too are like sheep without a shepherd if all we have is the purposes of the world, if our ultimate hope is uh, political or, or economical, uh, economic or, or, or social. Uh, uh, we get no direction and guidance from uh, television or from the news or, or from the internet. Uh, we don't have any sense of where the world is going or where we are going unless our only sense is it's going to a bad place. Um, and so part of uh, the purposes of our study uh, from what we've done in the last two weeks and now what we'll do this week and Lord willing next week uh, is to understand this, this purpose and this plan and it's also part of, part of Jesus' ministry as we look in the New Testament. And, and Mark just gives this perfect little illustration. He sees these crowds gathered and he thinks, wow, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. No, no direction, no, no, no purpose, no understanding, no, no greater picture of, of, of what's all going to, uh, where we're going or, or why we're even here. And if you've been with us for the last couple of Sundays, uh, we began in Genesis 1 and saw a, a couple of interesting things. Uh, one being is that we're uniquely created, created in God's image. We're the only thing in all of creation that bears God's image. All of creation bears God's creativity. And if you've got a dog or a cat, very creative, but not an image bearer. Just people made in the image of God. And one of the first commands, actually the first command that God gives his image bearers is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we begin to see the start of a, a plan of God that his image, 
which is born by people, men and women, uh, that his image would then fill the earth. He wants his image to be throughout the earth. Well, as that begins to happen, there's several challenges, uh, one of which is many people do not know the God in whose image they're made. And so there becomes this purpose uh, that, that starts at the very beginning of the Old Testament and runs all the way through the New Testament, which is not merely that there are image bearers throughout the earth, but that people would bear God's image well that they would represent God well, or or, or to use other language, that they would make God great among the nations. And so we begin to see the unfolding of an international plan. We briefly looked at Genesis chapter 12 uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is God's first sort of explicit plan as to he's going to take Abraham and Sarah and build them into a great nation. And ultimately in Genesis 12 verse 3, he says that through you, Abraham and Sarah, all the nations on earth will be blessed, or all the families on earth will be blessed, or all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And so he has this international plan for image bearers, and and he plans to reach them through this nation, or at least through someone from the nation that he's created with Abraham and Sarah. And so we spent the last couple of weeks looking at this theme that kind of runs through uh, the Old Testament. We spent a little bit of time in the book of Exodus, and we see that in Exodus that God's people, uh, this newly founded nation is in slavery in Egypt, and God is going to use Moses to deliver them from Egypt, but that whole process that he uses, which is going to involve 10 different plagues, the purpose of that process is so that the Israelites might know who God is, and so that the Egyptians might know who God is, and that the Pharaoh might know who God is. And so God is making himself known, and he uses a variety of ways of doing that. In in the case of the book of Exodus, he uses plagues and shows his power over creation by sending plagues and also by removing plagues. Both show God's power. And so there is this theme of God being concerned with the nations, with people, with image bearers, uh, with uh, the fact that they are made, we are made to bring God glory. And that theme will run right into the New Testament and right into the ministry of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we could make a parallel. Uh, Jesus comments here again from Mark 6.34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That idea of recognizing they have no direction, no, 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 no purpose, and so he teaches them so that they can see where they came from. Genesis 1, that God created all things, that he created people in his image, and also ultimately where they're going. And, and so I'm hoping that our time in the word together over these uh, four weeks is helpful for us to be reminded sort of where we've come from, what our purpose is, and where we're going. Or maybe better said, where God, uh, that we come from God made in his image, that God has a plan and God has a purpose for all of us, and that ultimately there, there is a direction that this will all end up. And so that's what we're trying to highlight over, these, uh, uh, over this uh, four-week series. An Old Testament passage, a familiar psalm that would uh, say virtually the same thing, Psalm 119, verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Take God's word out of that and you have 
uh, uh, feet that have no lamps, you have a path that has no light. In other words, directionless, not knowing where we're going. And so the study of God's word is always to illuminate, to, to, to be our shepherd as we are sheep, to, to, to be our path to show us where to go. We don't get that from the world. And it's not that this is picking on today's culture because we didn't get that 100 years ago, we didn't get 1,000 years ago. We don't get that in this country, but you don't get that in other countries. You, you get that from God who created all things and has a purpose behind all things. So anyway, that is our purpose here. And with all of that, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We'll spend some time in Luke as we um, uh, are introduced early on to Jesus' ministry and what he is doing. And uh, you'll begin to see in this little instance that we'll be covering in Luke chapter 4, you'll begin to see that Jesus follows this same purpose, this same plan of God that we articulated in the Old Testament in the last couple of weeks, that Jesus' ministry is going to mark very much uh, the same thing. And so Luke chapter 4 will begin in verse 14. Um, I'll just remind you, of course, that the Gospels are telling uh, the story of Christ. Each Gospel writer has his own purposes as to what he's trying to show, has an audience that he's, that he's uh, uh, presenting the material to. But just sort of common, common knowledge, when you're in Luke chapter 4, you're near the beginning. That's really my only point. You're, you're very near the beginning. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 give the details of Jesus' birth. Uh, And then really there's a lot of silence uh, till Jesus is somewhere around the age of 30 or so. And and then we have uh, about three years of ministry. And and so Luke 3 has Jesus' baptism, which is really the sort of the start of his ministry. Uh, Then ultimately early in chapter 4, we have Jesus testing in the desert, and then we pick up the story. So we're very early in his what will be some three years of ministry uh, that Jesus Uh, is going to uh, um, uh, embark on. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Let's stop there. Um, Some of you thought we'd actually uh, get into six or seven or maybe even eight words, but there was no no chance we could get that much. Um, We just need to understand here, so Jesus is primarily from the north, Um, We we have some problems, especially if you grew up in church, um, you have some wrong ideas. You know about where Jesus is from and you shouldn't. No one's heard of these places. No one knew where Nazareth was. But because Jesus is from there, and if you grew up in the church and reading the Bible, Nazareth is a a common, common word, Galilee is a common thing. No one knows where these places are. So Jesus is from the northern part of Israel, which is considered irrelevant. It's backwater. It's not special. Jerusalem in the south, capital city, yeah, we know where Jerusalem is, but these other places, I mean, who knows? So Jesus' primary ministry, even though if you've been around the Bible, these places all become familiar to you, uh, his, primary minist- his primary ministry is in places that are rather unfamiliar. Or to say it another way, had Jesus not been in Nazareth, you would never have heard of it. Okay? Had Jesus not ministered in the region of Galilee, you'd know nothing about that lake. The, 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 it's irrelevant. It's not important. But yet that's where his ministry is. And so he's returning here. Jesus returned to Galilee, to the northern part. He's been down south, 
which is where his baptism takes place and his temptation in the desert, probably south of Jerusalem. And now he's coming back north home, which is irrelevant in the greater scheme of things, so it seems, and yet that's where he's going to do his ministry. So in other words, when I say it's irrelevant, don't believe me. It's not irrelevant, it's relevant. But, but to most people, the perception is this isn't important, this is not an important place. I decided this morning I wouldn't name any states and use them as examples of irrelevant. That never goes well. Okay? Maybe we could use Canada as somewhat irrelevant being up there. But I didn't want to, so I won't. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside in the power of the Spirit. There's a couple things you need to remember. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And if you remember, John is doing these baptisms in the water, calling people to repentance. And Jesus comes and tells John, you need to baptize me. And John says, well, no, I I have no business baptizing you. You should baptize me. Uh, I need to repent of my sin. And Jesus says, no, it's right that we do this. And John agrees. And Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And if you remember, the Spirit descends on him. And the descent is very dove-like. It's it's descended in the way that a dove would descend, is is how the imagery is being played. And so the Spirit then rests on Jesus. Excuse me, in the beginning of Luke chapter 4, the Spirit leads Jesus into the desert for 40 days of fasting, and in that fasting and prayer, Satan comes to tempt him. And so he's being led by the Spirit. And now we pick up the work of the Spirit, and in, in Luke 4 verse 14, Jesus is returning to Galilee, to the northern area, to where he grew up, to sort of his home territory where he's going to spend much of his ministry in a place that's perceived as irrelevant. It isn't, but it's perceived that way. And it's the Spirit who's empowering him there. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So they're talking about Jesus' ministry. Well, we know that Jesus is going to do a bunch of amazing things in his ministry. Miracles are always amazing. I mean, if you stop and think about it right now, let's say Jesus was here today and he was going to pass through Frisco. What miracles would we want him to do in our own church, in our own lives? Needs that we have that would be absolutely miraculous if Jesus could come and touch and bring healing and restoration and, and, and new life in a way that only Jesus could. And so you can imagine as the knowledge comes out that this man, Jesus, who comes from these parts, Nazareth is really where he grew up, that this man is now back in town. The news about him spread. This is an oral culture. So the way oral cultures spread news is orally. They talk. And so people are talking about what's been happening. And you always know when you're talking, there are certain types of people who always say a little bit more than what actually happened. So probably some people are recounting some of the things that they've seen Jesus do. And probably some people are repeating what they've heard and probably embellishing it a little bit. Right? That tends to happen. It's called gossip. And so the news about him spread through the whole countryside, the whole northern area, all around the Sea of Galilee. People are talking about Jesus. He's just returned to Galilee. He's come there in the power of the Spirit. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Luke didn't need to say that. 
I mean, you could figure that out. If you did enough reading, you'd know that he, he, he comes from Nazareth. It's where he'd been brought up. You'll remember the story. He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, well, in Bethlehem, and they're there for some time, uh, Herod wants to try and... Herod has taken this title, King of the Jews, which is a tricky title for Herod, because to the Romans, the Romans think Herod is a Jew, but to the Jews... Um, they would grant him at best a half-Jew, which would be not a Jew in the eyes of the Jews. And so Jesus is born king of the Jews, which is odd because Herod's already got the title. He's king of the Jews. So Herod says, as king of the Jews, I should kill the king of the Jews so that I can keep my title. And so he attempts to kill Jesus somewhere around the age of two. Uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and flee, and they go to Egypt. They stay in Egypt until Herod dies. Then again, in a dream... God tells Joseph, you can go home, and home ends up to be Nazareth, okay? So I'm not exactly sure what age, maybe three or four or five or something like that. Uh, Jesus comes back home to Nazareth, and now he's home. He went to Nazareth, and Luke reminds us, so no one misses it, where he had been brought up. He's coming home. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, the synagogue began as a place where you could uh, worship and, and, and learn the truths of God's word uh, when you weren't down in the temple. Uh, some interesting history behind that, but essentially the synagogues began to be sort of just local assemblies where people could gather together. Not a bad illustration of what the church is ultimately going to become, but remember there are no churches at this point, so we don't want to kind of push the future onto the past. There are synagogues, and these are the gathering places where you generally have a copy of, of, of the law, of uh, the scrolls, and that uh, they could be read publicly. Remember, number one, scrolls were only available if you copied them out by hand, so everyone doesn't have them. Number two, not everyone can read. As a matter of fact, most people can't read. So the way you encounter God's word is you hear it, you don't read it. Okay. So where would you hear it? Well, if you lived up north, you'd go to your local synagogue. Okay? You also could hear God's word in the temple, but that's only on a trip that you'd make to uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And for most Jews, that would be three times a year. And so how do you hear God's word other than those three times? You go to the local synagogue. And in local synagogues, teachers would teach. The word for teacher is rabbi. And so rabbi is what Jesus is known as. He's known as a teacher. And what do teachers do? They teach the word of God. And so all of this makes sense. Everything here is happening exactly as it should. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. In other words, he always went to the synagogue. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Okay, so you got to kind of picture what's going on here. Uh, The Bible is retained. What we have in Jesus' day is nothing of the New Testament. They'd only have what we would call the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So scripture begins in Genesis and ends in Malachi in Jesus' day. Does that make sense? There's no New Testament. The New Testament won't be written till after Jesus dies, resurrects, and ascends to the right hand of the Father. So when we're talking scripture, we're talking Genesis through Malachi. It's stored on scrolls. Scrolls tended to be kind of 12 to 14 inches high. 
He's brought the Isaiah scroll. In our Bibles, chapters are given much later in history. And so in our Bible, Isaiah is 66 chapters. It's really long. So Jesus just got handed a big, big scroll. Uh, The scroll would be written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is written right to left. So he's going to open up the scroll and find the appropriate place. And we pick up the story there. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind. Excuse me, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Okay? So he's given the Isaiah scroll, he finds the appropriate place. The appropriate place that he finds happens to be Isaiah 61. Okay? So if you just want to think about this, the scroll is written, written right to left. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah, so this is right near the end of the scroll, which to us would look very much like the beginning because they're working right to left rather than left to right. So you got a really fat part of the scroll on this side. you got a really skinny little bit here, and he's reading these words. These words are the words of Isaiah prophesying of the coming Messiah. The word Messiah, if you'll remember, is this idea of the one who has received the anointing, the the set-apart one. When we talk about anointing, we think about the Old Testament, we think about David. You remember when he's anointed? Remember Samuel goes to visit Jesse and wants to anoint one of his sons, and so Jesse brings out the big three, right? And, And the big three, and God says, well, no, it's none of those. And Samuel's like, yeah, but he's really big. Like, that would be perfect. He's good looking, too. God says no. And so Samuel's like, are are there any other sons, Jesse? Jesse's like, no, don't think so. Oh, yeah, there is one more son. That's right, little Davy. And so they go get David. Remember, David is anointed, set apart to become king. He doesn't become king right away. As a matter of fact, if you remember the story, there's some multiple years of strife between Saul and David as Saul is seeking to kill David. And and we're not exactly sure how long that goes, possibly even up to 10 years, something like that, before David becomes king. But the anointing means he's set apart. Verse 18, Jesus is reading the Isaiah scroll. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That's the key word. Set him apart. Set him apart for what? Well, anointed people are people who are going to become king. Let's back up. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. God's Spirit is leading Jesus to Galilee, is empowering him to now serve in his local community. Then Jesus reads the Isaiah scroll from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, which is a prophetic passage written in the past, now about the present. Look at verse 20. Uh, Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came back home in the power of the Spirit 
to read Isaiah 61, which says that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, he has set me apart, he has messiahed me, and in Greek, once we get to the New Testament language, Jesus will take on this, Jesus the Christ. The word Christ means messiah or anointed one. He is very much going to take on this title. This is who I am. He's just read this passage and said in front of all his hometown friends, everyone who knew him as Joseph's son, everyone who knew him as a carpenter, he just said, I'm the Messiah. This has been fulfilled in your sight. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Here's my purpose. I need to proclaim good news to the poor. Nazareth, perfect. Poor, backwater, nobodies. Perfect definition of the poor. Jesus must be here for us. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners there would be prisoners. To the recovery of sight for the blind, there would be blind folks. Uh, To set the oppressed free, there would be lots of oppressed people. To proclaim the year of a... To proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, that's not from Isaiah 61. That's from Isaiah 58. Hmm. I wonder if he kind of did a little trick with the scroll to roll it back a little bit so that he could get back to Isaiah 58. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's a reference to the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you remember, but God set apart this idea that every 50 years that Israel was supposed to celebrate the year of the Jubilee. And one of the things that happens in the year of Jubilee is all debts are canceled. Okay, all land that you might have lost along the way in because you had to sell some or, or, or whatever the circumstances gets returned to you, gets returned to your family. Land was owned by families, not by individuals, but land would get returned. So the year of Jubilee was a time to rejoice. Debts were canceled. Land was returned. Everything was like returned back to zero. It was kind of a great big start over. Here's the interesting thing. The year of Jubilee is talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. Does anyone ever remember a place where they celebrated it? No. We have no record that they ever celebrated it. Can you imagine buying a house six years before the year of Jubilee? You've got a 30-year mortgage, and six years in, the bank has to go, it's yours. No, we can't do that. So Israel lived in the perpetual 49th year. The year of Jubilee never, ever came. At least we have no record of it. We have no record of them. They were commanded to celebrate. It wasn't optional. They were commanded. They just, well, they just didn't. So Jesus has come, and he's addressing the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed, and he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee. Debts canceled, everything returned back uh, to to, to the way it was. Families are restored their land. Uh, Things are made new. It's a giant reset button. And Jesus proclaims that. Then he sits down and everyone's looking at him and he says, today this is not prophetic. This is not about Isaiah who wrote this some 600 years ago. This is about me right here, right now. That ought to get a few people's attention. Verse 22, all spoke well of him. (laughs) This is Jesus. This is our guy, right? He's a Nazareth boy. 
Nazareth boy. He's come here and he's come home and, and look what he's going to do. He is going to proclaim good news to us. We're poor. He, he's going to get freedom for our prisoners. He's going to get uh, recovery of sight for our blind folk. Uh, he is going to uh, bring freedom to our uh, people who are op- oppressed and we are going to celebrate Jubilee. Debts are going to be forgiven. Everything's going to be made new. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words uh, that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. It's an interesting question because when we read the biblical text, it's always hard to know sort of how is it being asked. You could imagine a few different ways. Um, First of all, is this Joseph's son? Well, it's one of those sort of yes it is and no it isn't. Joseph would certainly be, be perceived as the father. Mary and Joseph raised Jesus and the rest of their children in Nazareth. And so Joseph is the father figure and Jesus is his oldest son. So yes, it's Joseph's son. But of course, well, it's not actually Joseph's son because Mary, of course, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has this unique birth born of a virgin. And so he's actually born before Mary and Joseph ever come together in a marital union. And so it's, it's not Joseph's son in the technical sense, but it is Joseph's son in the, in the sense that this is Mary and Joseph and, and their kids, uh, Jesus and, 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 and Judas and, and, and James and, and, and the rest of their sons. And there's several passages that list some of the, the children of Mary and Joseph. So it's one of those questions and you got to kind of wonder, why are they asking it? What, what, is the, what is meant by, is this Joseph's son? Are they asking because they don't know? Is, like, is this really Joseph's son? Isn't this the guy who was the carpenter? Who always hit his, hit his thumb with the hammer? That, that, wasn't it wasn't that guy? You, you know, that, it, it's hard to figure out under what sense they're asking it unless you follow the context. Because I think the context of this particular passage demands only one reading of what this means. And I think as we continue in this text, we'll be able to go back and we'll know precisely what they meant by isn't this Joseph's son. And so let's keep following the narrative between Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth and all the hometown. You gotta kind of picture the thing. Nazareth is a small place. Everyone knows Jesus. Jesus knows everyone else. Everyone's in everyone's business. Some of you born and raised in small towns, you understand how that works. This is a small town thing. No surprises. Every secret is held amongst everyone, right? That's how small towns work. They have secrets and everyone knows them. It's never a secret from anyone. That's how small towns work. All right, so we're in Nazareth. Everyone knows whose son this is. And so maybe there's ongoing stories of what happened between Mary and Joseph, right? Because people aren't believing that Mary was a virgin. That's not an easy story to believe. And so there would be those who don't believe that. So maybe there's always been rumors. Who knows what's all going on? We already know from verse 14 that news about Jesus had spread through the whole countryside. This is unfiltered news, which means probably some of it's true, and I I would guess some of it is not true. Uh, Now we have this, that Jesus is proclaiming a a jubilee, and and the the poor are getting the gospel, and the blind are getting sight, and the oppressed are getting freedom, and everything is going to be so good, and everyone's happy. Verse 22, all spoke well of him. Uh, Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. I don't know if you know where that comes from, but I don't. 
That's not biblical. That's not a biblical proverb. That must be some kind of a saying that's going on in these days. That, that, that there's a, a saying out there about physician, heal yourself. Because that's not a biblical proverb. So Jesus says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. And again, there's lots of proverbs that are not biblical proverbs. But I just want you to know that we're not quoting Old Testament to this point. We're just quoting a proverb that somehow is out there. So Jesus said to them, surely you will not quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, uh, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Huh. We got news of what you did in Capernaum. Do it here, Jesus. Homeboy from Nazareth. Joseph's kid. You remember that's how the story started. That from the very beginning, news about what Jesus had done had spread. So the news was possibly accurate, possibly exaggerated. Maybe it was inaccurate. Who knows? Who knows what's been said about what happened in Capernaum. But now they say, or Jesus is saying that they will say, do in your hometown what uh, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now remember, he first started by sort of throwing out this physician, heal yourself. Uh, physician, uh, those who are able to take care of others, take care of yourself, is, is, is the proverb. Again, not, not a biblical proverb, but something obviously familiar to the audience. And you will tell me that you want me to do in my hometown of Nazareth what you heard that I did in Capernaum. Okay. Well, now it seems that we're starting to, well, we, we, we've got a little bit of a challenge here, it seems, that, that there is an expectation on Jesus as a boy from Nazareth that he must do what he's done elsewhere. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Ooh. Now we're getting to some strong language here. No prophet is accepted in his own town. Well, prophets were people sent by God to speak the words of God, some of it current and some of it future. And so a prophet was a person who speaks for God, and and many of the prophets in the Old Testament were rejected by the very places they come from, which is hard. It's hard if someone is born and raised in Nazareth, as and you always picture them as a carpenter, uh, that now all of a sudden they're the Messiah. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a jump, that, that they're a prophet, that they speak for God. And so prophets were constantly rejected. But don't miss, I believe Jesus just called himself a prophet. That's huge. We don't have prophets anymore. We haven't had a prophet that spoke for, a, for God since Malachi. Malachi is about 460 years ago now. So if, Je- if Jesus is a prophet, that's huge. God's speaking again. Now, that's not exactly accurate because there is a prophet after Malachi and before Jesus. That's John. John the Baptist is proclaiming the, to, to make way and, and to be ready for the Lord's coming. And so John is clearly a prophet of God, but not everyone believes that John is a prophet of God. There are some who didn't believe John's message. So John is a prophet. That's a true statement. But some are thinking John is not a prophet. They're wrong, but they're thinking that. And now Jesus just called himself a prophet. So if, if Jesus really is a prophet, he is, you know, the next one after Malachi or, or the next one of two, John and, and, and him, are now God is speaking to his people again. I mean, that's amazing. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to... Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Elijah's time, one of the greatest prophets, he was a non-writing prophet, so there's no book of Elijah, but there are books that tell about Elijah. And Elijah was this great prophet of God who, who in a time of famine, when there were widows all over Israel, yet Elijah was not sent to any, any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I don't think that's going to go over very well, Jesus. Sidon's not in Israel. Why would God send Elijah to help a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon when there were lots of widows who needed help in Israel? You understand the question? God sends his man, Elijah, who's an Israelite. We're back in the Old Testament. And this is a familiar story, by the way. This isn't obscure. This is very familiar to to the Jewish audience that Jesus would be speaking to. And he's just reminding them, you remember Elijah? Remember who God sent him to? No one in Israel. Went to Sidon. Zarephath. the, The widow there. He goes on, verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. Well, Elisha is the prophet who comes after Elijah. Elisha is the understudy. And when God takes Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, then Elisha takes over. You'll remember he gets Elijah's robe. He has that same power and a great, great man of God. And and now we're going to talk about Elisha. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet... Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Well, I don't think that's going to go over well either. Jesus seems to be highlighting the fact that that in the Old Testament, God sent Elijah out of Israel to the region of Sidon, to the city of Zarephath, to help a a widow there. And that uh, Elisha, uh, well, uh, has the ability to cleanse lepers and and to to make a leper clean. Uh, The only leper that he actually cleanses is a Syrian commander named Naaman. I mean, it's almost like God is concerned about the nations and Jesus isn't concerned about Nazareth. Doesn't it sort of seem that way? I can imagine some of you are probably thinking, this is crazy. I mean, this guy's gone on and on and on about these handful of verses here. And, and how do we know that any of this is particularly right? I mean, if, if what we're saying is true here, these people wouldn't be, verse 22, all spoke well of him. These people would be furious. I mean, if, if we've got this text right, if we're understanding where Luke is leading us, these people would be angry. I mean, it's just crazy what's going on. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious. I guess we got it right. Do you see why they're furious? Homeboy, Jesus, comes back to Nazareth, Joseph's kid. Do, do you understand what the question is when they say, <clears throat> isn't this Joseph's son? This is a culture that does not view people as individuals. 
It views people as part of a family. You are who you are by the family that you're born into. And and it views the community as more important than the individual or the community is more important than the family. And so when they say in verse 22, isn't this Joseph's son, what they're saying is, this is Joseph's son. And Joseph and Jesus are from Nazareth. You owe us. You come here and you perform for us. And Jesus says, huh, that's not how God worked in the Old Testament. You see, this isn't about faith. This is about a lack of faith. You're a Nazareth boy. Perform. You're one of us. You owe us. You're indebted to us. In their way of thinking, this is what they're, they're demanding that Jesus do the miracles that he did. He just read this passage. This passage clearly is about Nazareth. And it is. And God is concerned about Israel and Nazareth and the region of Galilee and Capernaum and Zarephath and Sidon and Syria, Lebanon. In Egypt, God is concerned much more broadly than the people of Nazareth are seeing. But once Jesus reminds them of Elijah and Elisha, they say this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him out of town. And they took him to the, bur- to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. It's a lot of anger there for their homeboy. We're going to get rid of him but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's interesting that Jesus begins to describe his ministry, and as he describes his ministry as a messianic fulfillment, he reads the Isaiah prophecy, prophesying the coming Messiah, sits down and says, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. He brings out not only Isaiah 61, but Isaiah 58, which is a reminder of the year of Jubilee that is to be celebrated. He packages that all together and says that it's been fulfilled in their hearing. They demand that he acts, and he says that's not how God works. God's concerned about the widow in Zarephath, and God's concerned about the Syrian commander uh, who has leprosy. And God is concerned with more than just me. I'll bet you that was a very, very hard lesson for the people of Nazareth to learn. Because they wanted it to be all about them. And God was about something broader than just them. It's not that God doesn't like them, but they were not asking in faith They were not believing who Jesus was. They were disbelieving who Jesus was. He's just Joseph's son. Nothing special here. And so in that, when Jesus confronts them with this, of God's concern for the nations, they respond in fury. How did this all come about? Well, it begins like this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is wanting to accomplish the purposes of God. And this is how it goes. Follow me. Luke 24, the last chapter in Luke. We go from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry to the very end. This is Easter Sunday. Luke 24, Easter Sunday. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Uh, Originally, no one's recognizing him and no one understands that. And the disciples are running and looking for him and, and sad that he's gone and so on. And then he finally meets with his disciples 
and they get to see him face to face. Luke 24, and we pick it up in verse 44. And he said to them, Jesus to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a way of saying the scriptures. The law of Moses, that's everything that Moses wrote beginning in Genesis. The prophets are all the prophets. The Psalms is a representation of all the poetry. Uh, The Old Testament is always divided into those three categories. Law, prophets, Psalms, or law, prophets, poetry. There they are. Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in all the Old Testament, in all the scriptures. There is no New Testament yet. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written, the Messiah. Remember Messiah? Anointed one. It's how Jesus is going to take on the name Christ. The Messiah, the anointed one. That's a kingly term. This is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Remember, he's just suffered. He's just risen from the dead. It is the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to, to all nations. What do the Jews hear? To, 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 to the Jews or to Judea or to Israel. Or to use the Roman term, Palestine. It's not what it says. The repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you to what my Father has promised, and stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. What we get in the New Testament with the beginning of Jesus' ministry is the marriage between the power of God represented by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus, descends on him at his baptism. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert uh, to be tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit then, then empowers Jesus back into Galilee to begin his ministry in that region. And now Jesus says, once I ascend to the right hand of the Father, you just wait because you will accomplish nothing until the Holy Spirit empowers you. And so we start to see the role of the Spirit, and the role of the Spirit is to accomplish the mission of God, the purpose of God, the plan for God. And what is God's plan? His plan is repentance and forgiveness of sins to be preached in his name, the name of Jesus, to all nations. It's consistent with what we read in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Genesis 12, all through the book of Exodus, and on and on and on. It's the same thing. It's one plan that God has always had. In other words, if you want me to quickly summarize, let me summarize at this. God wants you to be concerned about image bearers. If you happen to meet an image bearer, your job is to help them as best you can bear his image well. You don't have to worry about anyone else, just image bearers. Does that make sense? All people made in the image of God. And so what we saw is that God in his creativity made male and female, both in the image of God. God made many nations coming out of Noah, all made in the image of God. Uh, People wanted to, instead of spreading out and multiplying and fill the earth, they wanted to come together and build a tower. And so God gave them many languages, all bearing the 
image of God. So we have incredible diversity in the earth today. We have uh, two different genders, male and female. Uh, uh, We have all sorts of different nations. Uh, We have different skin colors. We have different languages that we speak, ethnicities, tribal backgrounds, all sorts of interesting things. And amongst that diversity, all that diversity represents God Right? It, everyone bears God's image, and what God is calling is for this now forgiveness, for this new life amongst the nations. And so God has always had a plan, and it's the same plan in the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus as it is in the Old Testament. Let me briefly just read you two passages that are familiar, and we'll close. Matthew 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus... Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1 introduces Jesus by tying him back to Abraham. Why? Because in Genesis 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Matthew is setting up his gospel so that no one misses that Jesus' purposes will be for the nations because God promised Abraham All the nations of the world would be blessed, or all the peoples of the world would be blessed. All the families of the world would be blessed. You get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, again a very familiar passage. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's the role of the Holy Spirit again, that all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. How do they go about doing that? That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit leads people always to accomplish God's purposes. This is why it's very important to know what God is doing, because that's what his Spirit is enabling us to do. When we want to worry about what we want to do, often the Spirit isn't much help in accomplishing our purposes. And so God's purposes are revealed to us throughout scripture, and that's why he gives us his spirit to accomplish his purposes. And that's ultimately what the church becomes, is where the body of the believers come together to accomplish the work of God. Father, we're so grateful that your word is true and that Jesus, uh, in his ministry here on earth, came to model this love not merely for just the Jews or just Israel, but for all people. And we're reminded that this mission that you are on to reach all people is part of what we are called to be and what we are called to do. Thank you for each person here and for uh, their participation in Marathon Fellowship, for Marathon support of many missionaries around the world, uh, those who are doing the work in other places, and also for the work that needs to happen here. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us for your purpose, for your plan, and ultimately for your glory. In Christ's precious name, amen.